According to the Buddha's teaching, there are three main character character types that we may uh, locate ourselves within, either in part or in whole. And I think these are sometimes quite interesting to explore. As you have heard us talk about the three main hindrances or defilements or roots of suffering are grasping, aversion, and delusion. In some ways, we can understand these three tendencies of mind as being a tendency toward misplaced faith or trust, as Miyoshin spoke about last night. It's as though when we're completely lost within one of these states of grasping or aversion or delusion, we're offering our trust in the wrong ways to the wrong things. The word faith, translated from Pali, means to place one's heart upon or to offer our hearts. If we are lost in greed or grasping, then we are offering our heart to the possibility of somehow having the lasting satisfaction of our desires, having an experience of something or someone never change. That's what we're placing our faith in. And in anger or aversion, we place the heart upon an ability to separate from what's happening, to somehow declare it untrue, to declare it apart from the reality of the present moment. Somehow, when we're lost in anger or aversion, we are placing our hearts upon the ability to have some control over things, to have unpleasant experiences go away or may never have them arise, perhaps. We're placing our faith on the ability to cut certain experiences off. And in delusion, we're placing our hearts upon the ability to not notice, to not see the truth of things, the truth of change, We feel protected by not seeing, by not noticing how much everything really is changing. And we are placing our our faith or our trust in somehow muddling through life. This is a, a quotation from a poem by Pablo Neruda. The poem is entitled, Flies Enter a Closed Mouth. He says... When did smoke learn how to fly? When do roots talk with each other? How do stars get their order? Why is the scorpion venomous and the elephant benign? What are the tortoise's thoughts? To which point do the shadows withdraw? What is the song of the rain's repetitions? Where do birds go to die and why are leaves green? What we know comes to so little. What we presume is so much. Delusion, in some sense, is a state of not realizing what it is that we actually do know, not realizing what it is that we don't know, not knowing how to ask the right questions. In some ways, delusion is not having the spark or the energy to ask those questions at all. Certainly, we are all a mix, as you've probably noticed, of grasping aversion and delusion amongst all the other wondrous qualities that we've seen about ourselves. We're strongly conditioned 
to try to hold on and to find protection in that effort to hold on. And we're strongly conditioned to push away. And we are also strongly conditioned to go to sleep, to be lost in a fog of delusion. And yet, sometimes, even though we all have all three of these, you can notice that perhaps your uh, constellation of defilements tends in one direction or another. In the teachings, there are these three main character types talked about. The grasping or greedy type of person. The names aren't very nice, but they're not meant to be pejorative, actually. The greedy type of person, the angry type of person, and the deluded type of person. There are many aspects to each of these personality types. Some are you might say, unpurified, and some aspects are how that characteristic will display in a purified form. It's said that in response to any particular situation, for example, some people will tend to look on the bright side. Some will naturally, without seemingly any effort, seem to focus on what's wrong and some will feel quite confused. Those three responses do correspond to those three main character types. The greedy type of person, it doesn't mean you're a greedy person, but rather because uh, that is the impulse to enjoy, to hold on, to have pleasure. That type of person will tend to walk into a room, come into a room, and see what they like. Oh, you know, look at that attractive paneling. <laughs> I like what that person is wearing. Oh, how interesting. There's a tree in that corner. Wow, that's fantastic. And so, so that person will have that kind of response. I often say these are the kinds of people who sit in a meeting and will say, it'll all work out. And you think, how? How's it all going to work out? But uh, because that impulse is to not look, look at difficulty, not look at conflict, but to, to have that feeling of, of pleasure and to be soothed by that, that's just naturally what that person will see. Whereas an angry type of person doesn't mean you're an angry, ferocious kind of person who lashes out, but the tendency is to come into a room and notice what's wrong, what you don't like. That's just where your mind goes. So you might say, oh, paneling or whatever, you know. Um, or, gee, you know, isn't it, isn't it unfortunate that, um, you know, that person's wearing that terrible thing? And, you know, and it's just where the mind goes. And so these are the people who sit in a meeting and say, it's not going to work, <laughs> no matter what this is brought up. And then the last type of person, the deluded type of person, will be kind of confused and may not notice much unless it's pointed out. And so they say that this type of person uh, will be the kind of person who will sit in a meeting and need to wait and hear what everyone else has to say and just try to figure out what's... What is going on, actually? 
And again, while all of us are a mix, uh, I like this teaching about the, the personality types because it does remind me of the impersonality of it all, that those tendencies which we claim as I and me and mine that we feel uh, so badly about or we exalt so tremendously are really very impersonal. It's just conditions coming together in a certain way at a certain time. And so just for fun, uh, I wanted to describe in greater depth these three and especially the deluded type for a very personal reason. <laughs> Even just as an example, if you are the greedy type and somebody tells you, well, you know, there's this Buddhist system of personality types and you, um, you might t- carefully take in the information and really think, wow, it's so wonderful. Just imagine to have this startlingly wonderful typology and and you want to learn all about it and you just want to you want to get into it and dwell in it and if you're an angry type you might immediately say how can everybody just fit into three little simple categories it's really stupid you know like i hate this kind of thing you know it's so diminishing it feels like i'm just being reduced to somebody else's idea of who i am and and if you're a deluded type, you might feel a little bit dazed by all of this and think, which one am I? Or if you're a mixture, then your response might include aspects of all three of those. The Visuddhimagga, or the Path of Purification, which is a great commentarial work in the Theravadan tradition, describes each of these types in some detail. So notice if anything in what I'm about to read seems at all familiar. (laughs) When one of greedy temperament sees even a slightly pleasing visible object, they look long as if surprised. They seize on trivial virtues, discount genuine faults, and when departing they do so with regret as if unwilling to leave. When one of angry temperament sees even a slightly displeasing visible object, They avoid looking long as if they were tired. They pick out trivial faults, discount genuine virtues, and when departing, they do so without regret, as if anxious to leave. When one of deluded temperament sees any sort of visible object, they copy what others do. (laughs) If they hear others criticizing, they criticize. If they hear others praising, they praise. But actually, they feel equanimity in themselves, the equanimity of unknowing. Now, we probably all know that first type of person, that greedy type. And again, it's not a greedy person, but, but just that, that mode of being, constellating around um, looking for pleasure. And we probably all know that kind of person who, in some situation, will almost insist on ignoring difficulties. They'll want things to be nice all of the time. And we all know that second type of person, too, who, whose mind just seems to seize on what's wrong in any situation, sometimes pointing out problems that everyone else has missed, but not necessarily pointing out a resolution for them. And we probably all know that third type of person, the deluded type, who gets easily confused, unsure about what they feel or, or what they actually perceive, somehow dependent on the views of others. 
the Visuddhimagga goes on. You can discern the type of person by posture. When one of greedy temperament is walking in their usual manner, they walk carefully, put their foot down slowly, put it down evenly, lift it up evenly, and their step is springy. One of angry temperament walks as though they were digging with the points of their feet, put their foot down quickly, lift it up quickly, and their step is dragged along. One of deluded temperament walks with a perplexed gait, puts their foot down hesitantly, lifts it up hesitantly, and their step is pressed down suddenly. The stance of of one of greedy temperament is confident and graceful. That of one of angry temperament is rigid. That of one of deluded temperament is muddled. When they sit or they lie down to go to sleep, one of greedy temperament spreads their bed unhurriedly, lies down slowly, composing their limbs, and they sleep in a confident manner. When woken, instead of getting up quickly, they give their answers slowly as though doubtful. One of angry temperament spreads their bed hastily anyhow, With their body flung down, they sleep with a scowl. (laughs) When woken, they get up quickly and answer as though annoyed. One of deluded temperament spreads their bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downward with their bodies sprawling. When woken, they get up slowly, saying, huh? (laughs) Also in action, in sweeping, etc., one of greedy temperament grasps the broom well and they sweep cleanly and eagerly without hurrying or scattering the sand as if they were strewing flowers. One of angry temperament grasps the broom tightly, and they sweep uncleanly and unevenly with a harsh noise, hurriedly throwing up the sand on each side. One of deluded temperament grasps the broom loosely, and they sweep not cleanly or evenly, mixing the sand up and turning it over. (laughs) So you may have recognized yourself in that, or in all of that even. And I think uh, no matter which type you may feel you are, because we all have elements of each, it's interesting to explore what the particular constellations are like. I myself am a deluded type without any doubt (laughs) about it. And so I often speak about the, the quality of delusion, People ask me if I'm going to give my deluded talk, and I say it's not a deluded talk, it's a delusion talk. (laughs) And actually, that's a very big difference. Um, So I'd like to speak now some about delusion, and then go back to the types. The word in Pali for delusion is moha, M-O-H-A, which means to be stupefied. And we experience it when it's strong in the mind, as confusion, bewilderment, as dullness, as helplessness. It's the state of ignoring the essential nature of our lives. And because there's that uncertainty, there's that feeling of disconnection, then there's also anxiety, there's worry, there's fear. We don't know where we belong. We don't quite know what's happening. Often because of that uneasiness of of uncertainty, of disconnection, what happens is that we then cling to rigid views. It's said um, in the Buddhist teaching that the mind of dogmatism or fanaticism or conceit all come from that anxiety of delusion, of not really knowing. It's like we are 
looking quite hard for security someplace. And if we feel deluded or confused or stupefied and the unease is too much for us, then we will look for security somewhere. The example is given of being out in the wilderness in a storm. If we can find anything that will give us some shelter in that storm, then we will cling very tenaciously to it. In the howling wind and exposed to all of the elements, anything we can find, we will try to hold on to. Delusion has the characteristic of not knowing what's going on. And its function is to conceal the true nature of things. It's the feeling, I'm sure you've all had it, of driving down a road somewhere and suddenly not knowing, did I turn onto 202? Am I still in 122? Is this Massachusetts? You know, <laughs> Where am I? That's the feeling. It's the moment of utter confusion. It's taught that delusion is also something that can be equated with ignorance. And because of that, we can say that it's the root of other unwholesome states of mind. If we look inside that tendency toward grasping or holding on, we will see delusion. We'll see that they are linked to or grounded in delusion. They're produced by delusion, and they produce still more of it. When we're full of grasping, that tendency to place the heart upon the ability to hold on, to acquire, to possess, to keep things or people from changing, that's delusion. And how many times have we held on? Only to have the experience pass away. When we're filled with anger, when we have placed our hearts upon that need to keep terrible or unpleasant or painful things happening from happening, and we try to strike out against them or recoil from them only to find we're not, in fact, in control of the unfolding of events. That's delusion that keeps us trying to push away. Whether we decide we're a kind of deluded type or not, there are always elements of delusion in our experience. When it's very strong, there's a lot of restlessness and perplexity in our minds. We feel like we don't belong in our own body, in our own mind, in our own experience, as though we're inhabiting something strange. Often, in delusion, we don't tend to experience things in an integrated way. We can't quite figure out how the pieces come together. And so it's very puzzling for us. This can have a very profound effect on us. It's so difficult to open to suffering, whether our own or someone else's. It's much easier to get lost in delusion and simply not to see. It also can be difficult to fully experience states of joy, to inhabit more completely states of joy and and rapture and happiness. And so it's easier to just be numb, to be deluded, to be disconnected. Delusional function in that way as well. 
Because of delusion, we miss a lot. We get lost in that kind of cloud of disconnection. In my very early practice, when I was first practicing in this particular tradition, this lineage, and I was living in India, and I was asked to try to make a mental note of every predominant experience throughout the day, whether I was formally practicing or or not, I found myself in this compound in India, kind of walking around, and I noticed that the single most common mental note that I was making was that of waiting. I was kind of going around saying, waiting, 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 until finally I said to myself, what are you waiting for? And I realized that I was waiting for something important enough to happen or significant enough to happen or spiritual enough to happen so I could note it. And that I was really going around living my life as though a tape recorder with the pause button on. I was just waiting for something else to be happening. That's the force of delusion. Because really, the clues of how things are are everywhere. It said that the Buddha did not invent or create the Dharma. He revealed it. He exposed it. And so we too, we don't have to create the truth. We merely have to to see clearly, to notice. To do that, we have to recognize the force and be able to let go of the cloud of delusion. If delusion is a very strong experience, then it's quite common not to know what we're actually feeling. There was some interesting psychological research done once where these people were hooked up to all those machines that measure everything. And um, I don't know what happened next, if they were shown images or told stories, but something happened so that strong emotions were elicited in them. And it's very interesting because some large number of people said that even though objectively they were feeling something, their hearts were were racing, their blood pressure was going up, they were sweating, all the signs were there, they kept saying they didn't feel anything, that they weren't in touch with anything. And that piece of research is sometimes used um, to study empathy because, in fact, if we cannot register our own feelings, particularly our feelings of discomfort or unhappiness or suffering, we will not be able to register somebody else's. We will not be in tune with someone else's difficulty or pain. And if that's the case, then we won't have genuine empathy. We won't actually have compassion. If that's the case, if we don't feel the nature of pain and what it would be like, to be hurt in some way, then if we practice a path of morality, it's not coming from within. It's not coming from that kind of understanding. It might be uh, an adherence to a certain set of rules, or it might be rebellion against a certain set of rules. 
But the best kind of morality isn't even called morality. It's just that knowing. It's that sensitivity. Knowing what it feels like to be hurt, not wanting to hurt anybody else. Because in delusion, we're not so in touch with our own experience. We're often waiting for somebody else to say, that was really fun, wasn't it? And you think, oh yeah, that was really fun. Miyoshin referred to this last night. It's that uncertainty within, that lack of trust in oneself that is the the steady companion of delusion. I had a funny experience some time ago where I went uh, to Cambridge one night during a course to give a talk. And then I came back. I noticed just as I was parking the car that there was not that much gas left in the car, but I didn't think much of it. I went to bed, and I woke up the next morning to come here to teach, and I walked right by the place where my car was parked, and there was no car. So I was a little befuddled, because deluded types don't do very well in the morning, so I was kind of staggering over here. Um, And somehow I had the thought, well, maybe somebody figured out that the car was low on gas, and they they took it to put some gas in it. So I came here into the staff dining room, and I came upon the person who, if anybody were to have done that, it would have been him. So I said to him, did you take my car? And he said, no. And I said, that's funny. The car's gone. And then came the killer moment. He looked at me, and he said, are you sure? And I thought, am I sure? (laughs) I walked right by the place where I always park the car. Cars are really big. (laughs) You'd think I would notice if there was a car there. But I said, I think it's gone. (laughs) And then one of the other teachers walked in who's a self-described angry type. And I said did you take my car? And she said, it's missing? I said, yeah, I think it's missing. And and she said, well, you know you probably just lent it to somebody. You can't remember who. (laughs) And I thought, oh, okay, I lent it to somebody. I can't remember who. (laughs) So I came up, I went upstairs, and I was doing interviews all morning, and every once in a while I think, I wonder who I lent the car to. I can't remember who. And then I came down at lunch, and... Another teacher walked in, and I said, did you take my car? And and Joseph was there, and he overheard that. And he said, oh, I know what happened to your car. So I said, what happened to my car? And he said, well, somebody had an emergency in the morning, and and they needed a car, and it was the only car that could be taken. So uh, they took the car. But that's the moment. Is my car missing? (laughs) That's the function of delusion. And yet I'm told, actually, that deluded types are very nice people to travel with. Because I once went to, um, through, I traveled through China and Tibet with a, a friend of mine who is a self-confessed greedy type. And we would check into a hotel together, and, and she would say, well, do you mind if I take that bed over there? And I'd say, <laughs> no, no, fine. And maybe 15 minutes later, I'd say, why did you want that bad? And 
she would rattle off this whole list of things like, well, you know, there's no hole in the mosquito net and the mattress isn't sagging and it's close to the window so I can control the window and it's close to the fan so I can control the fan and you know, the light switch is right there. And it's like, I had noticed nothing. She had noticed everything. It's also taught, and this is um, quite interesting, I think, that because of delusion, not only do we miss a lot and not only do we lose confidence in our own perceptions and have difficulty trusting ourselves, but we also tend to um, fall into our suffering wholeheartedly. We can really latch on to our pain and suffering. Something that I found interesting in the Buddhist teaching that was difficult for me to understand for quite a while is that is the idea that if we do something hurtful or harmful, if we do something that's motivated by uh, greed or, or anger, jealousy, any of that long list of, of defilements, and we do, it, we do that action not knowing that it's unskillful, not knowing that it's unwholesome. So in other words, if there's ignorance as well as the grasping or the aversion that's giving rise to the action, then the consequence of that action is actually worse than if we were to do the very same thing knowing that it's wrong, knowing that it's harmful or unskillful. And that's quite different from the kind of conditioning most of us might have, which says something like, well, you knew better, and because you knew better, precisely because you knew better and you did it anyway, then that makes what you did ten times worse. And here's a, a teaching that suggests that if we do it and we don't know that it's wrong, that's worse. And I think in this teaching, the Buddha was speaking in very pragmatic terms about how the mind works. If we do something and we don't understand that it will harm us or it will harm someone else, if we're that out of touch, both with our own feelings and with the feelings of others, then we will really throw ourselves into that action. We'll really abandon ourselves into that action. We'll pour ourselves into it. There's no pulling back from it. It's like the full force of our minds is going into that action, along with the grasping, along with the anger or whatever. And ignorance as well is planting a seed that will be consequential, that will bear fruit. So when we reap the fruit of that action, when we experience the result of that action, we reap the fruit of that intensity, that abandonment of ourselves into the fullness of grasping and aversion and ignorance that was happening at the time we planted the seed. Whereas if we do something and we know that it's wrong, usually what we experience is the moment of wanting to do it, the moment of pulling back, saying, I won't do that, it's going to create a lot of suffering, then the moment of wanting to do it again, and the moment of pulling back, hesitating, and then finally, perhaps, the grasping or the aversion gets so strong, we just do it anyway. In that case, those moments of sensitivity, of conscience, you could say, of wholeness, of connection, they're not lost. They're not ineffectual we'll reap the fruit of those moments of going forward, of being lost, but we'll also reap the fruit of all those moments of being more balanced, more connected, more aware. 
And so it's because of delusion that we throw ourselves into the actions that create so much suffering. That's the, uh, it's like the seduction of delusion. That if we just disconnect and wrap ourselves in this cocoon, nothing is going to matter. And yet things do matter. It's also taught that because of the force of delusion, we forget about what is sometimes called in the Buddhist teaching karmic vision. This is the aspect of delusion where we feel so lost, we feel so disconnected that we'll cling to anything. Our view of things becomes the only view of things, whether we've gotten that view from our own experience or just borrowed it from someone else's comment. We cling very strongly. We forget that there are so many ways of perceiving and interpreting and, in fact, experiencing the same event, depending upon all kinds of conditioned elements that each person is bringing to that moment. I often think, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if somebody in the middle of a sitting got up and did something in in this room? Wouldn't it? Uh, And how everyone might have a different response. You know, some people might be annoyed, some people might be happy, some people might um, be reassured, you know, that they're not the only one. (laughs) You know, other people would feel compassion. I mean, there would just be such a range of different experiences. It's not just one thing. And yet we tend to think of the experience and the reaction as being so intertwined, as though inevitably without any possibility of it being different. Anger goes with that comment or that paneling or something. And yet it's not so. The story I usually tell about this is just a simple example that happened once when I was practicing in Burma. One day during lunch, I bit down on this whole chili pepper, and my mouth just caught on fire. Very soon after that unhappy experience, I went to see Saito Upandita for an interview, and I walked into the interview and just kind of chatting, I said, why is it that Burmese people like the taste of chilies so much? And he said, we don't like the taste of chilies all that much. So I said, why do you put so many in the food then? And he said, well, you know, we believe that the stinging, burning sensation of the chili will clear your palate, be very good for your digestion, be very good for your health. And we then went on to talk about these two different aspects of reality. One is what is called, could be called the natural property of an experience. You bite down on a chili pepper and there's a stinging, burning sensation. Then there's another level of reality, which is everything we add to that experience based on our hopes and fears and likes and dislikes and belief systems, all of the wealth of our conditioning. So I gathered from what he was saying that a Burmese person might have that same lunch, bite down on the chili pepper and think, oh, good, (laughs) 
here I am with this very fortunate stinging, burning sensation, and I'm clearing my palate and doing this wonderful thing for my digestion and this great thing for my health. Whereas I bit down on the chili pepper and I thought, I've got to get out of this country. <laughs> really, I thought, it's an hour flight to Bangkok. I can get on a plane. I could have a salad. I haven't had a salad in a really long time. This place is not good for my health. I've really got to get out of here. You know, two very different experiences. Same stinging, burning sensation. When we're lost in delusion, it's like we forget that there can be space between the experience and the interpretation. That they're not one thing. It's not just one solid block. That all of us are bringing this great amount of conditioning to all of our experiences. And that we can actually learn to be more open When we're lost in delusion, we forget that sometimes we are creating an entire worldview out of a stinging, burning sensation on our tongues. The world of conditionality, of, of fabrication, you might say, is immense and it's rich and it's varied. And it can be wonderful. It's not that one wants to or ever could really discard it. But it's that sense of absolute linkage that delusion makes for. So that we think chili pepper equals flight to Bangkok. (laughs) That's just how it is. And often what's really strange is that we actually have no sense of how we got that original equation, how A began equaling B. We just think, oh, that's how life is. That's how it must be for everybody. And if we are called upon to explain it and we can't, then sometimes we just make it up. Some of you, no doubt, have wondered about why one particular wing of this building is called the Catskills. This is a perfect example of what happens when we cling to things that are really just made up. When we came here in 1976, 1975 actually, for the first time, uh, just before the new year, 76, we toured the place to try to decide whether to buy it or not. We got to that particular wing of the building and Joseph, who grew up in the Catskill Mountains of New York State, which is an area that has a lot of um, hotels and resorts and so on, he walked into the wing and he said, this wing looks just like a hotel in the Catskills. So it was a joke. And then we went and we had lunch and we decided to buy the place and uh, moved in in February on Valentine's Day. And somebody went around and drew all of these maps because we couldn't find anything. The place was so big. And they, you know, they drew all these maps of where all the bathrooms were and the closets and things like that. And actually, as a deluded type, I'll confess that it took a very long time for me to realize that to get from what is called the Catskills to the annex, you had to go to the second floor. I didn't realize that for a very long time. I kept thinking, where is that wing? Where'd it go? 
Anyway, so this guy went around and he, he did this very detailed map and he put it up on the bulletin board and I went down one day and there I saw Catskills. And I thought, that's funny, Joseph made a joke. Why, why are we calling it the Catskills? And it was a mission of mine at one point to try to change the name. And then I thought, well, it doesn't matter, it was a joke, this will never stick, you know. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, 26 years later, it's still called the Catskills. One day, a friend of mine came, and as you know, when you come for the first time and you're given a tour, uh, he went on this tour, and when they got to that wing and the staff member said, oh, you know, this is the Catskills, my friend said, why? Why is it called the Catskills? And, and the person said, well, we call it the Catskills because this is the wing that lies closest to the Catskill Mountains. <laughs> um, You know, which, first of all, is not true. It actually does not lie closest to the Catskill Mountains. And second of all, it's ridiculous. You know, why would we name a wing of the building based on its proximity to the Catskill Mountains, you know? It was a joke that Joseph had made 20 years before. But this is what happens. You know, things arise and they assume a life of their own. We cling to the idea, we cling to the category... And because we can't figure out what purpose it serves, we make one up, and then we cling to that. (laughs) It's a very innocuous example, but look at everything that happens with where we, we get lost. We don't really know what's true, so we grab something for that feeling of reassurance. And then we hold on tight. That's called in Buddhist teaching, fixation. We focus in a way that's very clinging, where we miss the bigger picture. We miss the relativity of things, the tremendous array of conditions that are actually the truth of our experience. So we have grasping, we have aversion, and we have delusion. It said in the Buddhist time that he would be able to discern the type of person one was, and then he would give you a meditation just for you <laughs> to help you um, bring that to balance. If you have a tremendous tendency toward anger or aversion or dislike, then the practice is loving-kindness to ease grasping and clinging, we practice generosity or renunciation. And to counteract delusion, to bring it to balance, we practice focused attention so that we can connect. It's not that one type is considered better than another, but rather that all are considered equally Conditioned, equally impersonal. And it's quite fun, actually, if it's easy and spontaneous to use, I find, to use that, that mode of perception to realize, oh, 
That's not that person's fault. They're just a certain kind of type. And to realize that we all support one another, we all complement one another in a way as we bring our different strengths and weaknesses to bear. With all of these, mindfulness is considered the alchemical agent because each of these factors can be transformed or transmuted so that element of them which is positive can be brought to the fore and we don't have to be lost in the elements that are negative or painful. It's possible, it becomes possible to experience the positive aspect of each mental tendency without compulsiveness or without having that terrible sense of limitation. So in the teachings, that lifting up of the positive element of each of them is considered finding the purified form. The tendency toward greed, for instance, also indicates a willingness to draw near to things, to experience life fully, to surrender to experience. We don't hold back, we're not withdrawn, we're not morose. We really are willing to to touch life deeply with greed. When we can purify the grasping element of it, which has us foolishly try to hold on, then that same impulse toward coming close to life manifests as faith. And so faith is considered to be the uh, transmutation of that force of grasping or clinging. So... Uh, beings who are greedy types, or any of us who experience the force of greed, can find that through being mindful of it, not being lost in it, uh, not identifying with it, that the energy of it, that coming close, can actually serve us. So that grasping will transmute to faith. Angry types tend to see what's wrong in a situation. But this also can include elements of being ready to look more deeply than maybe others are so ready to do and being willing to honestly recognize what might be unpleasant or unwelcome to speak some truths that really need to be spoken because of that tendency not to just stay on the surface and try to cover difficulty over so that everything seems nice, it said that anger transmutes to wisdom. Because anger also, uh, wisdom also demands a level of, of going deeper, of not staying on the surface, of not taking things for granted, of being able to incorporate the unpleasant, not to hide from it. Wisdom also demands that kind of unstinting honesty that will align with the truth even if it's not very popular. If we're not hiding, then we can more easily see all the different elements of our lives. And so wisdom can function as the as the means of going deeper, 
rather than the, the burning and the hostility of the anger. And so that the deluded type feels disconnected from whatever's happening in a situation and doesn't quite know how to respond. But with increasing mindfulness, that tendency, that same tendency, transforms into spacious equanimity. Rather than being insensitive to what's happening, then a person can see what's happening, can pay attention to what's happening, but still respond with serenity rather than reaction. I had an experience the other day where um, I have this pair of uh, shoes that I keep here so that I go home in my boots and then I come back and take them off and put on these shoes. And I came in in the morning into the staff dining room and my shoes were gone. <laughs> And I stood there, there's this little cubby hole with everyone's shoes, and I stood there, and I stood there, and I stood there. And you know, all my colleagues came in and said, what are you doing? And I said, my shoes are gone. <laughs> Somebody took my shoes. And there were a variety of comments bandied about, like, you know you probably left them in, in the uh, coat room. And I thought, did I leave them in the coat room? <laughs> And then I thought, no, I didn't leave them in the coat room. <laughs> I left them right here. And then people said, well, you should go look in the coat room because, you know, it's most likely you left them in the coat room. And I thought, did I leave them in the coat room? <laughs> and then I thought, no, I didn't wear them into the coat room. I left them here. And, and this went on and on. I, I finally said, well, you know, uh, I have to go in and leave the sitting. <laughs> I can't stay here and looking for my shoes. <laughs> so... I came in here and led the sitting. I went back and I just stood and stared at the same cubby hole. I thought, where are my shoes? <laughs> Somebody took my shoes. And uh, I couldn't find them. I didn't have any shoes that day until uh, somebody brought them back. But I'm happy to report that despite all these comments about, oh, you must have left them here or you didn't have them here. There was another one. You don't have shoes here. And I thought, do I have shoes here? <laughs> I've had shoes here for a long time, I think that the, the kind of complete uh, abandoning of my sense of what was true no longer happened. So um, that is the, the nature of actually practicing attention and focused attention so that all those same tendencies may still arise. Did I leave my shoes in the coat room? Wait, I haven't been in the coat room. <laughs> But we can see that for what it is. We can feel those influences from outside and yet not get subsumed by them. And we can actually have a great sense of humor about it all. To realize that whatever, whether it's grasping or aversion or delusion, we can be trapped in the compulsive nature of that reaction or we can feel the arising of that tendency and simply be free. My friend and colleague, Sylvia Borstein, tells this story. Part of it's a true story. And she then goes on to elaborate it so that it could be used to describe the hindrances, but you can also use it to describe grasping, aversion, and delusion. A true part of the story is about a woman who came to her with this story, she said that she left her apartment one day to go to work, 
she got to her car and suddenly had the feeling that her car was a little lower to the ground than usual. So she looked down and saw that all four of her tires had been stolen. So this woman walked a mile to go to a mall to buy a pair of silk pajamas (laughs) as a kind of soothing (laughs) technique. (laughs) And fortified with her silk pajamas, she then came home and called the police. So that is like that greedy temperament. And as Sylvia elaborates it, she said, no, imagine another type of person comes downstairs that morning to go to work, notices that their car is a little low to the ground, sees that the tires have been stolen, and they kick the car, and they're furious, and they go to work, and they make everyone else miserable too, because they figure if they're that unhappy, then everyone else should be unhappy as well. And that is a really good description of an angry type. And this third type of person comes down and has the same experience, notices that their tires have been stolen, and they say, I've got to go back to bed. (laughs) You know, this is too much. I can't cope. If I take a nap, then I'll feel better. I can call the police later. That's the deluded type. But for all of us, there's always that moment of possibility. And mindfulness is the way. It's the way to not denounce our makeup, but to launch from it into a better way, to, to see what those tendencies can become, to really come to a place of, of greater peace and greater understanding. Wilkie said that our deepest fears are like dragons guarding our deepest treasures. The deepest treasures are those qualities of faith and wisdom and equanimity. And so held within these these difficulties and these elements of our experience that can bring us so much pain is this great wealth we practice to, to release that and to be able to live in that, in that enjoyment. So let's sit together for a few minutes. <laughs> 